0: please open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're going to finish another chapter today, and all God's people said amen. Uh, (laughs) Romans chapter 12 will be in verses 18 through 21 will be our primary text. And uh, it reads this way. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. It says, Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, there is much in our hearts and minds. Some of it is heavy, some of it is joyful, some of it is weary, and some of it is filled with energy. And so in the complexity of all the things that we individually and we as a community have, would you help us to know what it means to take all of that, our whole self, if you will, for direction, for your will? And even in ways we don't even know to ask the right questions, would you direct and guide us? You're, you're so faithful and so good to not simply answer the questions we may have in a particular moment, but you even give us better and new questions to ask so that we can see the fullness of your character and your will. And so we ask that you would shape us, that you would um, forgive us, that you would remake us more and more into your image as we open up your word today. For your glory, our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul has been writing, the Apostle Paul, this first century letter uh, to A collection of Roman Christians. And from a practical standpoint, he's writing to garner support. He wants to go to Spain, and pretty soon he is saying, I'm going to come through Rome. I'd like for you to set aside some resources and know that this is what's going on. I'd love for you to help me. Uh, But from a theological perspective, he's been instructing the Christian church there the nature of God and the nature of salvation. Specifically, I think he's been delivering this idea that you've been justified by love, it's, a, it's apart from works. It's apart from your own effort, right? And he's talked a lot in particular how that's hitting different groups of people in the church, how it's going to hit those Jewish folks who probably grew up in religious faith, the God of the Bible, and this may have been completely a shift in the way that they were thinking. It was also... He was also very mindful of Gentiles who grew up perhaps without that kind of religious background, maybe a completely different spiritual experience or no spiritual spirit experience at all. And he's helping them to even learn how to, how to live together. And that particular idea about how to live together, this sort of Christian conduct or behavior, becomes his focus when he shifts into chapter 12. Because chapter 1 through 11, he's really focused on their thinking, their orthodoxy, and now he moves to what's called orthopraxy, or how then shall we live in chapter 12. He starts teaching them in particular, as we've looked at the past few weeks, about how to respond to evil, how to respond to evil. See, along with our spiritual forebearers, Paul's original readership, we're invited to bless those who hurt us and to refrain, he says, from repaying evil for evil. And today we're given a vision for how this gospel response, the way we respond to evil even shapes us and it shapes the world around us. And you'll notice, I think, through our our time today that the invitation is pretty simple and yet really, really hard. The invitation is to peace, to live. Each time you add a word or a phrase to it, it gets more complicated, to live peaceably with all. And as usual, Paul is building on the teachings of Jesus, who instructed his earliest followers to be what? Peacemakers. So those who have been entrusted with peace are meant to be those who go out into a broken and chaotic and unjust world and seek the peace, the good, the shalom, the wholeness of the people around them. That's what I'd like to talk about today. I want to talk about the nature of peace and how it reshapes our world. What is peace and how does it reshape our world? And so following I think the flow of Paul's thinking here in Romans 12, 18 through 21, here's how we'll organize our time. We'll look at the call to peace, then we'll look at the foundation of peace, and lastly, the power of peace. So, the call of peace, the foundation of peace, and then the power of peace. So, look again at verse 18 with me. He says, If possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So, the controlling command in this statement that Paul has here in verse 18 is to live peaceably, it's this ongoing cultivation. In other words, it's not a one-time act. Wouldn't you love if most of the commands in Scripture were just a one-time act? You get it done once, you're good. Rather, Paul is communicating this lifestyle, this holistic approach to cultivating relationships, a habit, even a center of our own heart to live at peace with everybody. But what's that even look like? It's a nice thought. Uh, Lutheran theologian Gerhard Ledecki wrote an important collection of essays back in the day, and it's called The the Christian understanding of peace. Um, It's written in German, so I didn't read it, but I I read the cliff notes that were translated into English, so that was helpful. Uh, He wrote from East Germany before the fall of the Berlin Wall. And and so he's writing with this perspective that may be very different from any of ours, which is one, he's writing from a perspective that everywhere he looks, he cannot find peace. He's looking at his context, he's looking at his government and politics, he's looking perhaps even in his church and unable to find peace. There's a lot of brutality and pain and injustice and war. Essentially, then he explains that peace should not be defined positively or negatively. What's that mean? That peace is not simply the absence of conflict, that would be negatively, and it's neither simply the presence of justice, that would be positively. Rather, he encourages through this collection of essays that peace is connected to both of these ideas, but more than anything, we should understand peace through the lens of God's character, the lens of God's character and His nature, that peace should be defined by God Himself, by the peace of God. We considered this a while back, if you remember, from Romans chapter 5, and Paul explained it this way in Romans 5 verses 1 and 2, therefore, since we have been justified with, or rather by faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So you notice peace is the result of justification. It's part of the fruit of a life that has been saved by grace through faith. Peace is not then predicated upon your situation, upon your season. It's neither just because of positively what's happening to you or negatively what's not happening to you. Peace is about justification. It's about the kingdom of God that's showing up in your heart. It's about something happening on the interior that begins to leak outside of you, if you will. Therefore, by grace through faith, we live in God's presence without conflict, full of justice as His daughters and sons. That's peace. It's this new condition that lays hold of your soul. It's a new reality that does not shift despite what may or may not be present in you or around you. See, in sin, you couldn't be in the presence of God without conflict. You couldn't be in the presence of God at all. Yet in Christ, we have peace. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence, with peace as sons and daughters. We have peace with God. Now, in many respects, I think then we can define peace biblically as a bunch of new freedoms that we have. The peace of God is freedom from guilt. That's Galatians 2. The peace of God is freedom from shame. That's 1 Peter 3. The peace of God is freedom from hostility even with each other. That's Ephesians chapter 2. That's peace upward, if you will, inward and outward. What's more, this freedom or peace from God is meant to actually control your life. That's meant to be the centerpiece of your life. Colossians chapter 3 verse, let it rule. Church, how many other things besides peace ruled your heart this week? Like fear and worry, and reputation, and ego, and Instagram, and the New York Times, whatever it was, gripped your heart and ruled your life more than the peace that you have. I know that's true of me, that many times things rule my life that are not this wonderful truth that in Christ we are innocent, we are clean, we are in harmony with our Creator and with His creation. See, knowing that you are innocent before God means that you can walk in holiness and love without fear of rejection, without fear of rejection, because the only one who could have ever been justified in rejecting you has welcomed you. Knowing you're clean within your soul morally means that you don't have to justify your existence to yourself or anybody else. See, a lot of times we use this idea that I don't have to prove myself or justify myself to anyone else because we want to be the moral center of our lives. But actually the scriptures say you don't have to do that because Jesus is at the center of your life. Because Jesus has done a work to give you peace. Not because nobody else matters. Knowing you're in harmony with God and even his family means that you don't have to fight for belonging in communities that were not made for you. You know how many times we try to gain access to communities that the Lord is like, that's not for you you don't need to try to be a part of that. You don't need to try to make a name for yourself so that they accept you. I accept you. My people accept you. You're, you're, You're my kids. See, I think that's what this means, to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. His peace is the defining, the guiding, and the grounding reality of our lives. That when in doubt, I'm recentered. I'm drawn back like gravity. Take me back with all them. This is an invitation to live within this new justified identity within community. In other words, when one of your friends calls you up and they're not, they're not at peace, they're worried, they're fearful… A lot of times my impulse is like, it's going to be okay, you're going to find a job, you're going to get that promotion, you're really special and awesome, right? I just want to gas them, I just want them to feel better, I just want to tell them the situation will change. But here's the truth, it may not. It might get worse. So Christians, we are not those who hang our hats on our situations changing. We are not those who find hope in a future that we have determined will work out this way and everything will be okay. Our news is better than that. Our news is that no matter what happens around you, you've got peace. And so what I need from a brother or sister when I'm riddled with fear is why don't you trust that peace? What is it about that peace that feels too great? What is it about that peace that feels too much, too, too out of your, your grasp, if you will? What is it about that that just isn't settling your soul? Because the situation may not change. That relationship may not be resurrected. That kind of future may not be yours. You may have to move into a completely different field and yet you still can have peace. See, what we find in a new creation is that it's a whole creation. It's not waiting to be put back together by this world. It's already been put back together by the Lord. It's who you are in Christ with others. But notice, some of you probably noticed this at first because it's the first thing that is introduced in the English language, at least in this translation. Verse 18 says, if possible, Don't you love that? Some of you have just been thinking about that the whole time. So far as it depends on you. Tell me about that, preacher. (laughs) See, isn't it true that sometimes peace outside of me is not possible? Peace outside of me, or outwardly, is not possible, but peace inwardly is never going to change because of your standing before God. So this is why we focus on that first. Those two things are not the same. This is what I need a counselor, a loving wife, a good group, and a whole church community to remind me about. The peace out there is not the same way as be reflective in the world around me. This is why he called me to not just live in peace or us to just live in peace, but to be peacemakers, to go out and be used by him to see his kingdom come and his will be done. See, sometimes for no reason of our own, external peace just isn't dependent on you. We got to let go. Some of us really like control, and we will not settle for a story that we cannot find peace and make peace in that situation. The Word of the Lord is speaking to you today. (laughs) Sometimes peace does not depend on you. It's not possible. What our responsibility is is as much as possible as it is with us. There are times external peace is not possible, but you are still at peace inwardly and cosmically There are times when peace does not depend on you, but you are still at peace. The call to peace is to never distrust who God is within your life, even if you look around and you just go, Lord, where are you? There's a steadiness, there's a dependability, there's an unflappability that is about the Christian. The call of peace then is to rest in God even when peace does not seem possible around us. This is what the Bible calls shalom wholeness. Shalom is our calling. Paul then moves on to, from the call of peace to the foundation of peace. Essentially, he's asking the question, what do we do then? What do we do then if I know I've got peace inwardly, which sounds like a wonderful Sunday school moment, right? I've got peace inwardly but not outwardly. What do I do about that? Because it doesn't feel great to w- navigate a life like that. That I just have to go around everywhere, walking in and out of chaos all the time, and just go, I'm okay, everything's fine, I'm at peace within myself, right? The Lord is sovereign. So what do we do when conflict is present, when justice is not present? How do we maintain inward peace and even become peacemakers, if you will, externally? Notice how he continues. Look at verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. This is probably not what you wanted to hear. For, look what it says, it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The foundation of peace is the wrath of God. Now that might seem a bit odd to say, but ultimately the reason you and I can resist the urge to avenge ourselves, to curse at our persecutors, to that evil is that God has promised that he will make all things right that He will make all things right. We don't have to repay evil. Why? Because God will. God promises that He will do it. Because God is going to make everything right, then we don't have to fear and worry and manufacture justice on our own. We can live with peace. You tracking with me? See, God's wrath is actually an aspect of His love. God hates sin because He loves His glory. God hates sin because He loves you. God hates sin and His anger burns against it because He loves what He has created. And His love then compels Him to respond to evil. In fact, He would not be loving if He did not respond to that which violated His affections. Therefore, He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And since God will repay evil, we don't have to. We don't have to. However, I think many modern people might take issue with this, mostly because in our present time and certainly throughout history, it doesn't seem like God is repaying evil all the time, does it? It seems like evil is getting away with whatever it wants. In fact, the presence of evil and the claim that the God of the Bible is all-loving and all-powerful seems contradictory to many of our friends and neighbors. Perhaps it seems contradictory to you. Amen. You might ask then, how could a loving God, powerful, allow evil and suffering? We might think He's either loving and impotent or He's powerful and doesn't care, but it doesn't seem like He can be both. And I think one of the answers to the many answers that the Scriptures offer this conundrum is found here in Paul's words. God's that one day this tension will no more. See, one of the answers to this time tested tension is time. We look at the world now and see that evil persists, but God says it won't always. Scholar N.T. Wright, though, I think points to something that's a little bit more uncomfortable. Many describe what I've just laid out as the problem of evil, and N.T. Wright redirects our tension around the human soul. He calls it the new problem of evil. In his book, Evil and the Justice of God, he lays out three aspects of this ignored tension. In other words, we like to spend a lot of time talking about the problem of evil, but ignore the new problem of evil. He says, first, we ignore evil when it doesn't hit us in the face. Second, we are surprised by evil when it does. And third, we react in immature and dangerous ways as a result. So he points out a couple of things. And and this one hits pretty close to home, so God help us. There is this moral apathy which is innate in all of us. In other words, we have a hard time caring about evil that does not affect our lives directly. We just go to the next story. We just change the channel. We just don't look that neighbor in the eye. We move from one situation to the next if it does not in other words, pure advocacy, which many of us identify with a generation that, that really is excited to advocate for just about anything they can find. But ultimately, advocacy is much more scarce than we'd like to admit. Pure advocacy, purely anger or, or a desire to see change for someone else's good. See, there's this biased expectation that's natural. We expect good to happen to us. We're shocked when bad things happen because only good things should happen to us, right? See, we don't really have a problem with evil. We have a problem with evil when it shows up at my house. I don't really have a problem with suffering. I have a problem when I suffer. Why? Because I'm good. And I shouldn't have to endure all of this, right? I mean, that's what really gets down to the moral center for me. I may say something that is reported about in the news, but as soon as it doesn't hit my, I move on. In other words, as a culture... I think we're used to living with a false sense of peace based upon our perceived specialness. We have a false sense of peace. Let's keep keep pushing. We, We think we have peace, but I think what we really have is privilege. It's privilege. And privilege can be lost. So we deal in fear and violence and bitterness when someone threatens our privilege. That's when we get upset. When evil... Uh, does strike us. We respond, and, you know, N.T. Wright says, some pretty immature and unhealthy ways. We get offended. We get defensive. We seek vengeance without God. We even question God, not because we don't have peace, but because our privilege is threatened. Are you picking up on the difference? See, privilege is threatened by evil, but peace is not. Peace is not. Well, how do we excavate that? How do, that shaky foundation that I think is so easy for me, I know. To trust more in privilege than to trust in peace. Sh- Shalom, as we've mentioned, is God's peace, its wholeness. And the Apostle demonstrated this in his letter to the Ephesian church. Here, by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in the ordinances. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Writer Kelly Edmiston uh, explains that shalom means that something is complete or it lacks nothing. She went on to say elsewhere that peace or shalom is a reality that exists as complex parts come to fit together. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians. Complex parts are being fit together through Christ so that his church, his people, his world lacks nothing. That's the vision of shalom. That's wholeness. You see, what Paul is writing about is is to a people who are fractured. This this is what privilege does not not highlight in us. It ignores it. He he was writing to persons who are disconnected from God, dysfunctional within themselves, and divided from one another. He was addressing a problem which privilege then only can mask and only ignores. Now I realize for some of us, just hearing that word sparks all kinds of thoughts in our hearts and minds. It feels weighty. But I think privilege is easy enough to determine because I, I think we may just say, well, I'm not privileged. I just respond to that. I don't like that word. It's used in these conversations and I don't want to. Adi- well, let's just test it out. Let's test it out. Let's see. I think one way to determine our degree of privilege is by counting the number of problems you can ignore. Think about that. One of the tests of privilege is to count and to understand the number of problems that you can afford to ignore. You don't have to pay attention to because it doesn't affect you. If you can afford to ignore, for instance, the property tax increase in this part of the neighborhood, if you've been able to ignore that for a number of years, there's privilege there. Nichols, this past week, and other black bodies that have been abused and murdered and killed at the hands of law enforcement, that's privilege. I've realized something. I can ignore almost every national and state legislation. I don't really care what laws are passed because it almost never affects me. Like, it's, I can ignore it when the Supreme Court goes in session because I'm like, it's probably not going to change my everyday. It probably won't change my paycheck. It probably won't change my my kid's trajectory. It probably won't change my marriage. It probably won't change anything. That's privilege. That's privilege. Now, I highlight all of this not to shame anybody, not to say, therefore, how bad you are for privilege. It's to acknowledge those things and to discard privilege so you can have peace. All of those things give you the veneer of peace, and none of them are really peace that's not peace. See, privilege is about what you can ignore, but peace is not measured by what you ignore. Peace is measured by what you can endure. Are you with me? Peace is not measured by what you can ignore. Peace is measured by what you can endure. Peace is not apathy. It's not fearful. Peace addresses this upward, inward, outward disconnect, and then it seeks to rebuild shalom everywhere. See, one of the wonderful things, and I think it should be a joy, every time someone points out privilege to us, we should say, thank you, because that's another place where the peace of God can take over. Thank you. Show me everywhere, God, where, where privilege exists in my heart, in our church, in my family, so that we can replace it with the real thing, peace. That's justification. can endure all the way into glory. That's the kingdom, that's shalom. It's not that you and I are a privileged few who get to be called the church. Rather, it's that you are the beneficiary of peace that has made you whole and now you are peacemaker in the world. See, privilege never activates me to love my neighbor. It just makes me feel good that I don't have to deal with what they do. Peace does. Therefore, we can rest assured in God who puts all things back together, but that rest doesn't lead to apathy. It wakes us up to seek the good for our brothers and sisters and for our neighbors. It actually tells because now when you're part of a body, we've talked about this a lot, all of a sudden when you're a body, some news may not hit me, but if it hits you, all of a sudden I'm hurting too because you're my brother, you're my sister. Can you imagine if we became a body like that? is that more and more, when I read something, I didn't think, how does this hit me? How does this hit the members of my group? How does this hit my neighbor? How does this hit my brothers and sisters who I worship with? How how does this hit the the people who I do life with and maybe like just hop on the bus with or drive by and want to scream at sometimes? How How does this affect them? This is what a Christian does. A Christian doesn't think, oh, thank God I don't have to deal with that. But I know somebody does. I know somebody has God, what would it look like to draw near to someone who may not feel and experience that peace today? See, so shalom is such a firm foundation that I am willing to lean into discomfort and suffering and evil for the sake of someone else because it's not threatened by it. Privilege is. See, peace is our calling and it's our foundation. This leads us to this new power that reshapes the world. Look at how Paul ends chapter 12, verse 20. He says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Think about this. What privilege tells me is I'm so glad I have something to eat, thank God. So glad I have something to drink, thank God. So glad I'm not like my enemies, thank God. But since God has promised to cosmically repay evil, we can respond with love even towards our enemies. We can bless those who hurt us. That's a supernatural kind of power. I don't do that in and of myself. We We can read this as a general principle to meet the needs of those who hurt us, but the evil and the need I don't think are disconnected. The the evil and the need are not disconnected. Paul is whoever lived. Something deeper than may be going on. Let's think about this. Isn't it true usually when someone hurts us, something is probably hurting them? They are probably hurt. They are probably hurting. So then wisdom instructs us instead of to emotionally react and to return reviling with reviling or evil with evil, to see the person and the need beyond the evil act, underneath that evil word. Specifically, someone might have hurt you because they're hungry. Someone might have hurt you because they're thirsty. So feed them, give them something to drink. Someone might be sad and angry and jealous and scared, and that's why they hurt you. So love them. You see, this is not disconnected because when you read it at first, you're just like, well, Is my enemy hungry? Like, why are they acting crazy? Like, they're my enemy. What Paul is helping through the words of Solomon to to unearth for us is what it looks like to look and to see the whole person, what it looks like to live peaceably. This is what's required. To live peaceably, I need not to respond and just react to behaviors and words. I need to see the image bearer behind those acts and those words, to live peaceably. Solomon says this, in response to evil, it will be… like heaping burning coals on his head. It's an odd statement. Likely Solomon, though, is borrowing from an ancient Egyptian custom. Someone who had just done something wrong and was remorseful or considering their actions and words or their thoughts would carry a bowl of burning coals on their heads. It was meant to symbolize that they were having a change of heart or a change of, th- of their mind, of their thinking. And so what Paul is telling us is that when we respond to evil by seeing the person, by feeding the person, by giving a drink to the person, by loving the person, being done in a spirit of transformation, we have this possibility of seeing that person reshaped, rethinking, and reconsidering how they have treated someone, perhaps us. This is how we make peace. This is the power of Christ. I, read, I even read and think about that. I'm like, can you really do that? Can you really hear a hurtful word and go, man, I bet their day's been hard. That's like resurrection kind of power, right? My boss sent me another cruel email that, you know, that really… I bet they're having just a hard day. I wonder how I can love them. To, to pull yourself out of that moment requires the mind of Christ that sees the whole person. This is hard to believe. And in fact, I don't even think deep down in our guts, I don't even think we think that peace is that transformative and that potent. We don't think peace has that power, do we? We live in a world that fights fire with fire. We bring guns to gunfights and we repay evil with evil all the time, sometimes without even thinking it. We believe that's just how justice is served. That just makes sense to us. And yet this is exactly what we're being taught. In summary, Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, everything he has just described is what it looks like to overcome evil with good. We're invited to imagine a world where instead of powering up, we serve somebody. Instead of lashing out, we love. Instead of seeing an enemy, we see an image bearer. Instead of mirroring the evil done to us, we mirror the love that Christ has demonstrated towards us. In other words, the more we mature in Christ, the the less likely we are to be mistreated and think to ourselves, here's what they deserve. And we think more, how has Christ responded? How has Christ responded to me? After all, God did not see our sin and simply mirror our behavior back to us, did He? You lie to me and I'll lie to you, or you ignore me and I'll ignore you, you hurt me and I'll hurt you. He saw our sin and He saw us, persons, people, image bearers. He saw hunger, He saw thirst, He saw brokenness and bond, good response to evil. Whenever hearts and in our worlds, He loved and He restored shalom. Whenever we see evil, what we see is a lack of shalom, a lack of peace. And this is the kind of peace then that reshapes the world. Because our world is broken and it is breaking. But sh- with every evil deed and word that is not bringing healing, but shalom, we're told, can do the opposite. That only Jesus can bring healing and reshape this world into the image that he has always had for it one that is peace grounded in peace, and exercises His peace on a daily basis. Can you even imagine if we were a a church, a people that live peaceably with all, ruled by peace, so that the King of Peace would be known here, now, and forever? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we have accepted a fabrication of peace It's kind of been good enough that often just isolates us, makes us feel better, but it's not the real thing. It's not peace. And so we thank you, Father, that you do not bring change through shame and guilt. You bring change through love and peace. And so I pray for my sisters who are riddled with fear and worry and hurt. Would you bring them peace? I pray for my brothers who are riddled with the same. Would you bring them peace? Would you even reveal to us the ways that privilege masks problems, sort of protects us from actually having to live in real space and real time with our brothers and sisters and with our neighbors? It feels like peace, but it's not. Would we long for something that's more enduring, more potent, more powerful, more beautiful, more hopeful so that we would be able to live in a world that has your resurrection power. We thank you that you promised to do that because your son lived perfectly. He died sacrificially, was buried literally and rose victoriously and ascended authoritative where he rules and reigns to this very second. And so we ask that you would bring your peace